0: Hi, this is Alan Gleason, and you're listening to The Sassholes with
1: Jamie, Jason, and Pete. Welcome to The Sassholes, a show dedicated to issues within the software as a service industry. We are revenue ops with an edge. Not bad. Jamie, KG, and myself, Pete, have a combined 100 years of making interesting decisions. Please subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Today, our guest is Alan Gleason. Alan Gleason is a B2B SaaS marketing consultant with a particular interest in scaling B2B SaaS startups by helping them to generate more leads and to grow their businesses. Alan started his career in financial services in the UK at Barclays, a leading financial services company. He then went on to work as chief marketing officer for a number of VC-backed SaaS companies. For the past eight years, he's been working with fast-growing B2B SaaS startups as a strategic marketing consultant with his London-based company, Work With Agility. But before we get to Alan, this episode is brought to you by NeuroNoodle. Hey, parents of athletes, get a doodle of their noodle, which is a brain map before the season starts so you have a baseline to compare to. You get a physical every year, right? Schedule a brain checkup now at NeuroNoodle.com. Takes only 20 minutes to get the data you need to ensure the quality of your athlete's future life. KG. You're
2: going to pick on me today. Jamie's not here. Yes. Pete, What do you got?
1: My my friend was showing me his tool shed. He pointed to the ladder. He said, that's my step ladder. He said, I never knew my real ladder. (laughs) Leave us, leave us some comments on our blog. at sassholes.net. Thank you for the, uh, the glorious laughter there, KG. You're almost as good as our old buddy, Jason. You got any shout outs, KG? I, I do. You know what you need
2: to do, yeah, Pete? You need to like you know get the uh, Brady Bunch canned laughter in, in there next time. Uh, but you get me every time with those, though, even no, though I'm reading read- them. Yes, In the show notes, they're good. Uh, Yeah, I got some shout outs here. So congratulations to Rachel Essenfeld for being promoted to Senior Manager of Partnerships and Growth at JobGet. We used to work together at ZipRecruiter. Congratulations, Rachel. Uh, Congratulations to Aaron Johnson for starting a new position as sales manager at Restaurant365 with my friend and former guest on the show, Will Emmons. Remember when we had Will Emmons on the show, Pete? Oh, absolutely. Good old Will. That's right. And then uh, a happy birthday to Liza Dunham, formerly of uh, ZipRecruiter. She's a badass uh, operations person. And uh, congratulations to Lindsay Taylor, formerly of ZipRecruiter as well, for starting a new position as Senior Manager Global Systems Operations at Uberall. And that's all she wrote.
1: And my shout-outs are uh, Steve Vincentino, got a new job as vice president of sales at iHeartMedia. Steve, I heart you, buddy. Ben Shute for being promoted to sales director, staffing at ePay Systems, and old-school Eric Lochner, starting a new position as chief executive officer at Meeting Play and Adventury. Long time no see, Eric. Hope you're doing well. Okay, casual conversation. Are we ready, guys? Let's do it. There we are. Let's go. Alan, please tell us about yourself. How'd you get to where you are today, my friend, across the pond in the UK?
0: That's it. I guess when you were leaving uh, university, potentially a bit like myself, there was no such thing as B2B SaaS, right? And no such thing as digital marketing. So I guess that's something that's useful for all people starting off in their careers. The world is changing quite a lot, right? Um I started in finance. I'm from Cork in Ireland originally. I graduated with economics and marketing as a primary degree. Then I did an MSc in strategy, so strategy marketing. Um, Joined Barclays, a UK financial services company on their grad program. This has gone back in time. I'll fast track a little bit. Um, I worked in a strategic division there, and we were looking at this fancy new thing coming out called the internet. Hmm. Um, And uh, I ended up working in internet strategy for Barclays, I ended up leaving after a couple of years and then joined an American software company. And believe it or not, we were shipping boxes of software. So again, I don't know if you guys can remember. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was selling software in a box that was in a retail store. We're trying to get eye level positions. We're trying to get people picking it up in the store, loading it onto their uh, CPU based uh, computers, running it off the desktop, all that good stuff. And we all noticed that 56K dial-ups were speeding up. Internet was getting quicker and transitioned as a result of that into SaaS. So um, I've been in, working in SaaS ever since. And more recently as a consultant at the sort of strategic level, helping a mix of uh, venture capital-backed uh, B2B SaaS startups.
1: Which of those floppy disks, huh? Can you remember them? Well, they're five and a quarter, three and a half. Both? <laughs> we, were, uh, the, yeah. we were the
0: round disks, we were the round disks, right? Oh, I mean,
1: the, CD? Oh, the all right, yeah. all right, Good. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> wow, those are
2: the, those are the days. Well, you know, we, we take it for granted, you know, we talk about SaaS um, on the, on the show and the SaaS holes, etc. but, but, uh, but tell us, Alan, you know, what, what do you, what is B2B SaaS, software as a service, and why are you, you know, why did you gravitate towards it? Why are you interested in it?
0: Great question. So SaaS, you know, is software as a service, right? So it's software, not hardware. And of course, there's consumer applications and there's business applications. Um, I guess the early days of SaaS was was very much in, in the business sort of sphere. And sort of that's the area I'm in my career. I find it, I guess, KG, I find it endlessly fascinating, right? So we kind of alluded to it there. You know, it's still, you know, a very, very new sort of um, industry, right? Because, you know, wearing a European hat for a, for a second, you know, we were probably slower to get fast connections in the US. We were probably slower to get startups out there. Um, there hasn't been that cycle to the same extent where you've had lots of people go through the, the journey of starting a business and scaling up and exiting, right? And then creating the, the next wave. So it's still a very kind of early um, stage, which which means but I guess there's lots of opportunity. Um, it's also very nuanced, right? I find it intellectually very challenging because we all love playbooks, right? <laughs> but, the, but the crazy thing is, is it's very hard to have playbooks for, for SaaS, right? Because, you know, SaaS can cover everything from a 20 buck a month, um, you know, application to something that's, you know, 500K and, and plus a year, right? So yeah. within that, yeah. there's a whole mix of different things. So there's some of the reasons that I find it so fascinating. Um, I don't know. Do you guys share those sort of uh, feelings or,
2: or, um, you know, from your knowledge of what appeals to you guys? Well, we're we're old enough to remember, you know, EDS, Electronic Data Systems, you know, Ross Perot's company. And so, you know, if you really go back in the day, software as a service is not really like it's not it's not new per se but it's a, it's far more prevalent now. And, and honestly, Alan, I, I can't even imagine a, a scenario where somebody ships me a disc <laughs> and, <I know. laughs> and it's, you know, down. In fact, that Adobe downloaded, I downloaded something for Adobe on my, on my computer yesterday. And, and I thought, my God, it's weird. It's not in the cloud. It's not that, that it's, it was weird that it wasn't, <laughs> you know? Um, and I'm sure as everything, you know, shifts, but, but you're right, you know, Pete and I are dyed in the wool sales guys and, you know, we've sold, uh, large packages, software as a service, as well as highly transactional 400 bucks a month, you know, type of, right. you know, try and it's, and there is, there is, uh, nuances and of course, large, some of the larger packages, Alan, as you know, um, there's there's an onboarding process, you know, that, ta- that takes a long time and getting data over. Whereas, you know, the twenty bucks a month thing, it's not. So the, those nuances definitely make it um, make it, you know, unique and, and challenging in and of itself, right, Pete?
1: Yeah, I think they asked, uh I'm trying to think what the year was. I mean, every we were everybody was trying to copy telecom, where you could get that good subscription revenue in, where you didn't just sell, you know,
2: right else. Right. You know,
1: transactional, then you can get the, you know, the ARR. You want to take a stab? What you, what year you did? Microsoft start that? I, I don't even remember because they did their Office per mm-hmm. month and.
0: I mean, there's a couple of ways of looking at it, right? So in the UK, you needed an AOL or a free serve disc. You have to physically go into a store, get the disc, loaded on your computer, so that you can connect to the internet. And yeah. you went through a portal, right? You went through a portal like AOL or free serve in Europe, whereby. Your landing page was the portal. So it, you kind of come at it from a couple of different ways that, that you know, that you couldn't run applications over, over the internet back on a 56K, right? You could do email probably, but you certainly couldn't do anything heavier. So I, I don't know. I feel like it was probably around kind of 2001, 2002 that I was getting a hint that it was beginning to kind of kick off a little bit. Um, I'd need to double check it, right?
1: Right. Yeah. No, that's about right. That's about right. You know, the young kids today, they're not gonna fact check us. We can tell them anything. We can tell them anything we want. But you know what's always what's always been the same is uh marketing sucks. That's why our marketing guy isn't on the show anymore. Uh that's right. war-
0: Pete, I was warned about you, right? I mean you're you're wearing your sales hat, right? <laughs>
1: that's that's right, because the leads suck. Marketing sucks. You know, we they, they throw them over uh the them at us, and then we throw them back. Uh, how do you how do you get sales and marketing to work together, or can they work together, Alan?
0: Well, firstly, we got to work on people's attitude, like yours, Pete. Right, you got to be more um, more accommodating. You got to be more open. Right, you can't be, <laughs> this isn't a blame game. You got to remember, we have to be your friends because you know, uh, you know. Again, there's no playbooks, but but let's assume it's 50-50, right? Sales are originating. 50% of leads through SDRs and accounting execs doing outbound. Maybe another 50% are generated by marketing, doing content, webinars, events, PR, et cetera. So you kind of got to be nice to us, right? Because you're right. There's this <laughs> dance that goes on where sales like to blame marketing and marketing likes to blame product. Hey product, you got to ship better features. If our product didn't suck, if our product, you know, had, you know, quadrant top right quadrant in, in Gartner, we'd be very happy. If it was, on G2 and Captera and was getting, you know, hundreds of five-star reviews, we'd be very happy. So we all have the ability to go and needle each other. And I think there's a couple of things to think about, right? So, so one is we really need a feedback channel, right? A feedback loop. The big Achilles heel, in my view, and when it comes to marketing, is we don't spend enough time listening into customer calls. We are chronically under-resourced as a function. There's a thousand things to do at any one point in time. And the thing that we really should be doing a lot more of is listening in on sales calls. We don't. I don't know why. And part of it is probably bad prioritization. But in the absence of that, I think there needs to be a really strong feedback loop. And it can be a simple thing as having a dedicated Slack channel. And I've used this quite effectively with a couple of clients, actually, whereby, you know, one example would be in a new category that we were in. You know, I really pushed them to put, you know, detailed just quick Snapchats in Slack, what were the keywords that they used to describe their pain? So when they came to articulating the problems they had, let's get the keywords in so we can start looking to make sure that our content is addressing that. You know, attribution is a big bugbear. Yeah. You know, we can help you if we really understand where the leads are coming from. You know, everyone assumes it's easy. Attribution is really hard, but yeah. the easiest way to get it is if you're on a sales call, and you're talking to someone and you just throw in, look, Alan, curious, how did you hear about us? And I say, Google, you know, Alan would would love, you know, get Google. It's the main browser. Can you remember what you searched for? Yeah. I searched for your brand. Huh? How did you know about our brand? A uh, word mouth referral, put that in, you know, so, so I guess we're looking for a more kind of collegiate supportive atmosphere. And then the final thing is I've got clients where I work with, where, Our messaging is off. The pricing page may not have the features rank ordered in the hierarchy that the customers talk about. The features can be badly described. You know, marketing, because they're that one step away, can miss some of this stuff. So I think it's in sales interest to be a lot more um, open and kind of proactive about feeding us back stuff that can help us do a better job.
2: What's right. the, I know. what's, a, guys good, buy what's that? a good way? Well, not really. <laughs> uh, cause, cause there, there's, there's very few salespeople that are, uh, and let's just be honest. Salespeople are kind of stupid at times. Okay. Let's just be honest. Um, and, and they're not, <laughs> yeah, they're, they're not. No, and they're liars. Down. They're all liars. Well, not all of them. Just, just, just you, no. <laughs> you they um, th- they're, they're not going to go down that long process of like, Hey, where did you find us? Google. They'll stop at Google. But you and I, Alan, you and I both know that the attribution is really hard, and it wasn't Google. <laughs> you know, it came from some other source mostly. Because if you just trusted that they said Google, then you're going to miss out on that. You know, that billboard that they saw driving by one. You know, one time and things like that. But right. Um, right. But but I um, I, I feel. At ZipRecruiter, we had a really good part. I had a very good partnership with our SVP of uh, our, our CMO actually, and the right. reason for that was because we were actually tied to a common uh, a very a common metric. Now we didn't share. Uh, uh, sorry, when I say tied to, I mean like we were measured <laughs> by a right. common metric. Uh, some people suggest, Alan, that, uh, marketing should have the same quota uh, share a quota. And that will force that kind of, um, you know, collaboration there. Um, two things, one, I'd love to hear what your thoughts are on marketing, having, and sharing the same exact quota as sales to truly get them on the same page. But second, you know, back to you, this was literally posted on LinkedIn just the other day. Um, it was a survey, and it read, "What's the best way to give feedback to marketing if the quality of leads is poor? A. Say nothing and hope it improves. B. Email and slack them. Or C. Set a you know set a meeting." And and first of all, I read that question. I was like, God, "For God's sakes, so like that's just so." you know, loaded, like none of those answers are any, are any good. So I'd love to get your feedback on both of those things. One, should marketing have a quota? And number two, if the, if sales thinks the leads are bad, how do they give the, what's the best way for marketing to get that feedback?
0: Yeah. And look, the first one is very nuanced and like the big challenge. And I'm going to, again, give you guys a bit of context in the difference between us and Europe. Right. So the big challenge we have in Europe is we're chronically under resourced when it comes to the marketing functions. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, what you see in the U.S. is when you've got a Series A or a Series B, it could be a Series A of 20 million and a Series B of 100 million. The Series A in Europe could be 2 million, and it could be Series B could be 10 million. So, so what you end up having is, you know, pretty small teams in Europe. So most marketing functions in B2B SaaS in Europe are two or three people. Obviously, as you scale and grow, you, 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 you lever up. But then when you look at the kind of things that that team needs to do, You know, there is a thousand on it. It's not just lead acquisition. There can be some brand awareness can be done. There can be marketing or sales collateral. You mean there's an endless list. I mean, and and if you're kind of pre-product market fit, you got to go and really validate the assumptions that built the startup in the first place by talking to people. So there's an endless list of things where sales is a little bit more black and white, right? It's You know, so it's much easier to kind of say, right, we're going to tie you to a number. And I've had this with people where they're really sticking the marketing function to, 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 to kind of these lead figures. And I'm saying, fine, but just, you know, the team at present, you're asking us to do content. You're asking us to do events. You're asking us to do webinars. You're asking us to do collateral. You're, you're asking us to build awareness. You're asking us to have a good employer brand. I'm looking around the table and I got two people on the team and they're both in their twenties and it's their first job out of college. So I think there's a bit of a pushback, AG, in terms of, um, you know, I think there's a different argument if you're on a scale-up journey. So your ARR is pretty significant, you know, you're you're around for a number of years, you're on a different trajectory altogether. I think then you carve it out a little bit and you do try and align them because you're right. There, there's There's a quantity and quality argument. Kind of turning to your second question, of course, is the old... Um, Gilbert cartoon I think we had years ago about a dog filling in a form on the website right and sort of you know and and that's kind of you know kind of relevant right because marketing when you look at one of our primary jobs in terms of the acquisition piece is getting people to fill in forms whatever the call to action is request demo Um, but we know human nature you know there's all kinds of people going to be filling in these forms people looking for jobs people looking to sell you something yeah Um, so, so so, I think there, there's always going to be an inherent tension around the quantity and the quality. Um, and, and look, what I'd argue is you can't operate in silos. You've got to operate, uh, uh, you know, collectively. And you've got to put in the diary a 30-minute or a 45-minute or one one-hour call on a weekly basis to just shoot the breeze, obviously have a structured agenda. But, you know, it then becomes less about... You know, pointing fingers and saying the quality is, is poor. It, it's around, okay, why do we think it is? Getting back to the attribution. And like you can have silly things whereby you could have a new Google Ad campaign that might, for whatever reason, um, target non core regions because somebody left didn't uncheck a button, and all of a sudden you're getting a load of leads coming from areas that aren't really relevant. You know, so there's always these nuances that um, that exist. So um, I don't know whether you share those views or whether you've got an alternative perspectives that could obviously help inform the debate.
1: Hey, what do you think? Where, where should uh, well, it gets down to where do the business development reps live? Is that marketing or sales? I'd say they're in sales. So for me, there's SDRs, account execs, and BDR. They're all in the sales function. Um, would, would be my take. Okay. So it's not marketing. They should be, they belong to sales. Right. Do you see it? it, You consult with a lot of companies out there and I'm sure it's more in the States than it is across the pond, but what percentage of companies do you think have the uh, SDRs, BDRs, whatever the acronym is you want to use, reside in marketing versus sales or, or everybody's in sales? I'm
0: seeing in Europe again. I've never seen those. I mean, I've probably worked with thirty B two B SaaS companies in the last number of years. It's always been on the sales side of things, you know, business development. Reps. Sometimes it's outsourced. You, you know, the typical structure we'd see here would be. You'd have your junior SDRs doing outbound on your behalf. You'd have account execs make, you know, the SDRs may may set up a discovery call with an account exec and that account exec may hand it over the fence to BDR. Marketing typically in Europe would sit in a slightly different context and they'd be responsible for a number of things. Going back to my 50-50 argument, they would be responsible for lead gen, but that would be typically through things like Google Ads, through things like events, through webinars, and of course content, which is always... they would be kind of the main things. Then they'd probably be looking at things like activation. So when people hit the site, how do we get them activated and potentially retention as well? But strikes me from your side of the fence. Are you
1: arguing that it should sit in the marketing function, Pete? I'm just asking because it comes down to budgets, right? You know, if if the SDRs are part of marketing, then the leads can't suck because SDR is part of marketing, and they, you know, it's the handover, the transition when it gets over to sales is when you have the issues. Here, let me throw you a curveball, Alan. If uh, if you're marketing, okay, and you don't have the SDRs, maybe this is the chief revenue officer's decision, but when do you, let's say uh, an SDR costs 100,000 US all in, just throwing a number out there, when do you spend the money for that head or when do you, Spend that money for the Google AdWords. When does marketing get the hundred grand? When does sales get the hundred grand?
0: That's a curveball. I don't think I even fully understand the question. Oh, you okay, say okay. if there's just a hundred k, and you got to fight for it, how do you know where it's allocated? It? Is that what you're it, arguing?
1: Well, you can either have the SDRs pick up the phone and get the leads, or you can get the leads from marketing. When is it? What is a better use of the hundred thousand, or, or 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 the? Let's say if it's a dollar, okay. What what is a better use of funds to go to Google or to get the rep?
0: Yeah, I'm carrying it a half, and I'm giving a bit to each. Other. I mean, I, I'd like to put my eggs in a few different baskets, right, and start measuring. You know, my ability to convert through those different channels. So I, I think, and this is my point. I think. It's so nuanced that I that I think this, this is the kind of the, the tricky bit that you can find things that work in some scenarios just don't work in other scenarios. So, um, Pete, I'm probably dodging it by saying, I think you've got to try a few things. Right, the, the tricky thing that we found with outbound and SDRs in Europe, and I don't know if you guys have the same issue in the states, is it takes quite a while to get it yeah. to get it working, yeah. particularly in the it early does. days. And, and you gotta have the patience to stay the year because what happens three months in, everyone's shouting and roaring saying that there's no there's no engagement, and That's of course right. they blame they blame the tool so DiscoverOrg or they blame you know Cognizant which we big in Europe they blame the tool they but it's so nuanced you know have you got your right personas defined have you got the right messaging are you willing to say. Whereas Google Ads, the payoff is much quicker. You can throw a couple of landing pages up, put a couple of grand into 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 Google Ads, fire some traffic at a landing page, and you you know you may see some conversions. Again, it depends on the category, right? If it's a transactional type play, yeah, you'll get conversions yeah. pretty soon. If it's enterprise, you won't. So, so Pete, I'm kind of pushing the the, the curveball back to you, saying it um, depends. I, I think you you, you got to yeah, right, and and like. That's a frustrating answer in some ways, but I think it's a case of you, you just got to test a few different ones and see then if you can get a decent measure on, on the, but, but ultimately, I think what you'll end up doing is you'll probably end up, you know, like a bar stool, you'll have three legs, right? So you'll probably be running content. You'll probably be running paid acquisition and you will be probably running SDR. And you, you know, going back to the attribution, they may help each other, right? Yeah. You might be doing ads on on LinkedIn that get spotted by the same people that are getting
2: inbounds, right? So yeah, no, there, there, there's definitely uh, data out there, Alan, that suggests that there is a smaller portion of BDR and SDR teams that, um, that report up into marketing. In fact, my last company before I retired was upkeep, um, just last year. And, uh, when I started, they had SDR BDRs reporting into marketing. And the very first thing I did was, uh, commandeer that, uh, because I wanted to make sure to be, be able to have that, uh, that level of, of control. So it wasn't this like, Hey, we're, you know, they're throwing leads over and they're not working. You know, I, I wanted to have that, you know, that accountability. There's no doubt about it, but I think for our listeners, Alan, you, said it and i want to emphasize it you know pete there is no black and white answer it's it's you have to test it and 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 the other thing you also said alan which is so right on for god freaking sakes have some patience with these bdr sdr teams you know it's not like it's not like google adwords where you whip up a landing page and a lead comes in and boom there it is and see it's working you know it takes time you're dealing with humans that have to get up and running and you're dealing with the, the like you said the messaging and of course the percentage of connect rates that these BDR SDRs are getting are infinitesimal the, you know these days it still works it just works at a smaller percentage and you have to you know you have to be willing to uh, um, test into that investment as opposed to saying we tried SDRs for two three months and they didn't work so BDRs SDRs don't work that that's an well, immature okay. way of looking at it that's exactly it. Because the other kind of nuance you've
0: got, to, you've got to factor in, right, is that there's a couple of weird things. Like the fact that B2B SaaS is increasingly going down these narrow verticals is it's hard to get statistical significance because you're just not getting the volumes through. So that's the first thing. And yeah. secondly, with outbound, it's kind of the law of large numbers, right? We know that a, a cold email may get a 20% open rate and a, and a kind of a, a click-through might be in the single digits, right? So if you're only sending 100 emails... Do the math, you know, it ain't going to fly, right? So, so there's there's a couple of ways you do. You either spend a lot more so that you're sending a lot more emails out, or you're kind of being patient to go on the journey. And I guess I go back to the 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 problem we're finding, you know, in Europe, uh, you know, and and I guess the states probably to a lesser extent is that, particularly VC back firms, they're they're watching cash flow and they're impatient for, for for quick return and they can't we can't be content with the kind of come back in six months and then we can decide. So, you know, I, I wouldn't like to be in an outbound SDR agency at the moment. I mean, if I was, I'd be only doing one year contracts because otherwise yeah. you do a three month contract and your, your, your client's going to churn, right? They're going to be expecting results. Whereas if you do it for a year, you're, you, you know, you're, you're committing to the journey, you're yeah. signaling up front. This is the time it will take. And it's your point, KG, it'll work, but it'll be, you know, and this is the kind of last point. And then uh, we, we go to another question is, you know, outbound isn't going to work if it's if the annual recurring revenue is 2K, right? You know, it's, it's going to be, the unit economics aren't going to work on the smaller contract values. You, you really got to be picking it on the, the kind of elephant hunting, bigger enterprise where you're getting a decent check because
2: otherwise the maths just don't work, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, so I think it was Serious Decisions, Alan, that published, uh, it was Serious Decisions and another firm that suggested that if your ACV your annual contract value is less than like 20k SDR the math just doesn't work when you insert the human and this was 5 6 years ago now the cost of SDRs right. are even are even higher so when you insert that unless your product has an amazing LTV and you know super sticky an L, an ACV of less than 20 grand it doesn't make any sense to have an SDR uh, you know, generating uh, generating leads. In fact, that's what we did, Alan at ZipRecruiter. Our annual contract value was um, about five six thousand dollars several years ago. Um, it's, right. it's higher. Right. It's higher now, I believe. But um, we tested and tried like five different iterations of SDRs, BDRs, um, because we we had hypothesis. and again, we were testing everything. We thought that perhaps by in even though our ACV was low we can improve conversion rates and in, in velocity. Mm-hmm. So the volume of transactions would go up significantly to make up for having the SDR BDR in there. That was, that failed. Mm-hmm. Um, we tried uh, the other initiative, which was um, only focus on the big deals, qualify these SDRs so that they're above $20,000 and we couldn't get enough deals above 20 grand to to justify having the SDRs in there, and we had like three other iterations of BDR SDRs, and we just with that deal size, we just couldn't um, couldn't make it work. We made it work on the enterprise side, by the way. Those are the bigger right. deals we were doing fifty thousand bucks a year, at least at that time. But but yeah, you're you're right. It's it's BDRs SDRs. It's hard, and you've got but you've got to be committed. You've got to be committed over over time and be willing to test and experiment. Right. Absolutely. I mean, there's a great post. It's a few years old by a guy called
0: Joel York, um, a, U- a US commentator, and he talks about the startup graveyard and he sort of has a matrix and he kind of literally, you do the maths and you can see. And, and And the challenge again is, of course, is, you know, you need to know your unit economics for SASRA. right? You need to be pretty hot in numbers. You need to be having mature conversations with your CFO or finance people. And, and traditionally in Europe, finance people, you know, they did profit and losses, they did accounts, right? You know, SaaS accounting is a very different kettle of fish, right? It's sort of, you know, there's some very weird dynamics about it in terms of pressure and cash flows you grow, you know, the need for sales and marketing up front, those costs up front, and obviously the revenue is coming into the future. You know, the implications of how your your business model breaks if people churn after a year or two years. So, you know, it's very, going back to a question you asked right at the start, why am I kind of interested in it because I think it's intellectually a very uh, rewarding space because it's endlessly kind of challenging, right? And if you're up for it, you know, you you kind of get a lot of intellectual stimulation from the job, which I think you don't get in other areas.
1: Yeah. Alan, a a key word that I've heard from you is feedback. And you have the States and then you have across the pond, the UK, It's a lot harder to remove somebody from their position in the UK than the States. Uh, I I would imagine. And in order to remove somebody, they need to have feedback that they're not performing the job that they should be or not coaching them and how they could get better. How often should you have coaching sessions I mean, is it weekly one-on-ones? Is it quarter reviews, annual reviews? What's, what's your thoughts on that, Alan?
0: Yeah, so the, the trend over here, again, in, in Europe, um, annual appraisals are kind of dead. So the view that you know, an annual appraisal was used, particularly kind of grew out of banking to you know allocate bonuses at the end of the year, that's kind of dead in the water, right? So there's no doubt that there's been a, um, a move away from that. One of my clients actually is a company called Appraised, which is a bit like Lattice, so that would we'll be very much in the space, which kind of mm-hmm. has software for helping with performance management. Their kind of mantra is, is more frequent, is, is really really important. Um, I guess what they've noticed, though, and again, this will be part of the philosophy I would share, you, is a couple of things. One, a lot more of us are working remotely in Europe at the moment, so there's definitely a disconnect in, in terms of regular almost like water cooler chat where you could probably have a, have a bit of a feedback loop or a bit of a chinwag that's kind of gone with everybody working remotely. But also there's this just, just the sense that um, continuous, you know, feedback and kind of having, having a philosophy of, you're not criticizing somebody, but that you're very much um, you're, you're looking at what we determine marginal gains or continuous improvement. So, you know, m- my approach is, is is and it works a bit easier with more junior people. Is look got a lot of experience here. There's a learning journey here we're going on. You know, let's go on it together. So, uh, you know, part of it is, is is regular coaching. I think, particularly when you start going back to some of the earlier themes that I would have talked about, which is that you know there is it is a complex space. It's very nuanced. Um, and you look at sales, for example. You know, which you guys are more familiar with. You know, there are no sales courses in, 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 in Europe, right, per se. Like, I would have done a primary degree in marketing. It's probably <clears> not fit for purpose because it's a different sort of um, type of marketing. But, you know, so sales is one of these careers you grow into. So I'm a very strong believer in, you know, trying to have regular coaching, regular feedback, regular mentorship, but done so in a way that, you know, cards on the table. It's two ways, right? This is just about collectively trying to solve problems, not being a kind of a hierarchical Boss, you did this wrong, you did that wrong, you did this wrong. Very much so, here, let, let's share ideas to try and get you to a better position.
1: So, would you say it's, it depends? I guess it depends. Is that what you're saying? To give yeah, the feedback? Like, like,
0: w- yeah, again, and you're going to be that's going to be a phrase you will write down afterwards. And is Alan dodging the questions by, to <laughs> I mean, you know, I think like we're all very busy, right? Nobody's got time to be sitting down for an hour of feedback 360 every week, right? So I think, I think what I'm kind of saying is communication is key, particularly with remote working. So I, I'm more on a, on a, okay, you want to tie me to it, you know, maybe a formal weekly chat. You know, for 15 uh, minutes. Uh,
1: how about this? Whatever the time period is, have a uh, uh write it down and give written feedback back to the person. How's that?
0: There you go. There you go. There you go. Okay. Ping an email straight afterwards or a Slack. Totally. Obviously, okay. you don't want a huge gap between what you observe and feedback. That's why annual appraisals were were, were terrible, right? Oh yeah, last March yeah. you did this. Yeah. Nobody yeah, can I'm remember, totally right? Fair.
2: So, what are some, uh, so when you're coaching some of your, your uh, marketing proteges, let's say, either they report to you or they're, or they're clients of yours, what, what do you feel are some of the, the tips that, that you uh, give to your proteges or clients on mastering B2B sales, uh, I'm sorry, B2B SaaS marketing?
0: Yeah, look, I, I'm a great believer in bias for action. You know, so I'm, I'm less worried about academic credentials. Yeah. You, you know, I'm, I'm not so pressed in that. It's, it's like a bias for action. So, you know, when I do interview processes, I look for digital footprint. And, and you know, by that, I mean, if I Google their name, even if they're a junior, have they got a Medium account? You know, have they written an article? Have they written a blog? Have they put up a Wix or a Squarespace site? You know, so, so I think there's a couple things. So, so one is a bias for action. So I'm really about getting stuff done. You know, it's not a 20 page report anymore. Give me a one page summary. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a very demanding role. There's an awful lot constantly coming at you. So you've got to be able to be comfortable with that world. Right. So you've got to be able to um, have a, a method for putting all these tasks into where you can prioritize. So so bias for action for one. um you know you got to go on a continuous learning journey right i guess you guys you're probably the same as me it's not like you can kind of close the book when you're when you're done after your academic stuff mm. you kind of have to have your couple of go-to blogs that you're reading on a on a, on a regular basis so you've got to have this voracious appetite for, for ongoing learning if you don't i don't think it's the right kind of function for you because i think it is demanding um so, so there are some of the things less about acti- academic credentials, more about an appetite for a learning appetite for doing demonstrable evidence that you can, you know, show that's like, sales is the same, right? I, I had interviews previously with people and I couldn't find them on LinkedIn and they're looking to get a senior sales role. I'm like, I'm sorry, you can give me whatever reason you want, but you don't have a, a LinkedIn profile, you know, you know, I don't yeah. buy it, right? I mean, I, right. I don't buy it like that. That's where you got to live, right? And if you're in B two B sales, right? So, so there's some of the things.
1: Alan, being in marketing, and we're on a podcast right now. How do you see companies starting to use podcasts as a cross between marketing and sales, or softening up the market uh, to to get leads? Do you, you think a lot of companies are there yet, or everybody's just figuring it out?
0: Yeah, I, I think you got to. A couple of things on that, Pete. So, and I won't say it depends, right? So this time I'm not going to say it depends. (laughs) Finally, I I think, I I think, um, like it's it's go goes back to the broader understanding of the kind of purpose of marketing, and it kind of can't be solely through the lens of of the hard nosed lead gen, right? Because you know things like brand awareness, um, you you know, is important, right? You you know, and, and not everything is kind of cause and effect, whereby like google ads probably is right but you, you know as you mature as a company you know your ceo is going to have to be public right their their focus shifts from being internally focused to externally focused so so podcasts are just part of the general um, element that helps to get people to understand the person a little bit more gets to to demonstrate expertise for example it gets people to 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 be educated right because the philosophy of most of my work is you know, it's, it's more on solving people's problems and helping them solve problems. So if you're, if you're kind of aligned on that philosophy, the leads will come, right? So I think if you're, if your mantra is, uh, you know, you know, I'm not on this pitching, I'm not promoting anything. I'm more just having a conversation to share stories that I think could help other people. And I think there are some of the elements that I think podcastings can be, podcasting can be very useful, whereby you go from an anonymous profile on a website to understanding a bit more about a person and a bit more about their thoughts and a bit more about their, their attitude and their experience. So there are some of the softer things, but it goes back to marketing's remit is a lot broader than just the kind of lead gen piece. So um, that's how I'd address that
1: one. All right. Well, let's transfer over to blogs then. <laughs> I, I, I'm sure you've written a lot uh, besides your own blogs. Do you have any go-to marketing blogs that you could uh, suggest to our listeners out there?
0: Yeah, I do. I mean, um, what's funny, right? There's a lot of blogs. They're 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 male, right? they're 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 often US. So so the, the, what's interesting is we kind of we could all benefit from more diversity in, in the blogs, right? So yeah, you know, I like people like Mark Suster. I think he's an interesting writer. Um, he's a VC in California. Mm-hmm. KG, I don't know if you've come across him. Um, yep. He's not as he's not as prolific writing as he used to be. But um, some of his old stuff is timeless. David Scott is another guy that would fall into into that kind of bucket. He's in Matrix in Boston, another VC. Mm-hmm. Andrew Chen has just written a book, worth looking up on Cold Start. Um, Tom Tungus, another VC. Um, so, so like, actually some of the more interesting people in the space are, are actually the VCs that are writing about their kind of experiences with, with Mark Sooster probably being the standout there. Yeah. And then there's a guy, Avanish, who I particularly like, Avanish Koshik, who has got a blog called Occam's Razor. Um, I'm going to have to email you later to spell that because it's a bit tricky. Um, but it's fantastic. He's based in California, probably not too far from UKG. And Avanish has a weekly um, blog and newsletter, actually. It's one of my only paid newsletters that I actually subscribe to. Mm-hmm. And it's very much more on the kind of data side of things. So he's he's not marketing per se, but it's data and analytics, but he, he's endlessly fascinating. So that's a snapshot of some of those that I, that I enjoy.
1: And you brought up VCs, Alan, um, it, in marketing at the different uh, series of, of funding. Could you, cause we have a lot of new uh, managers, a lot of new reps that listen, marketing executives. Could you just quickly go through the different rounds of funding and then how you would deal with marketing at each level?
0: Wow, well, Pete, we could be here for a long day, right? It depends.
1: Least, it depends. Yeah, yeah.
0: And I look at changes, right? So seed and series A. So, so normally what you have is you, you might raise what's called a seed round, which might be the first checks in, you know, angel rounds. There's a guy called Jason Kakanis in um, yeah. in California. Yeah, who You guys may be familiar. Who's probably, he's probably the most prolific blogger and podcast host in the sweet spot. So a lot of his stuff is so, – so they might be the first couple of checks in, right? Um, And at that stage, you're looking for kind of, you just got some assumptions that you want validated. So you're really trying to focus. uh, And this is kind of a key piece, um, Pete. At that stage, it's not about lead gen, right? It's about validating the assumptions. So again, you know, there's a methodology espoused by a guy called Eric Reese and Steve Blank. Again, they're both in California. And they talk about the lean startup methodology, which is kind of in that space, right? Which is essentially saying the first check is not about lead gen, It's about go and have as many conversations as you possibly can about the problem that you perceive exists and how your solution resolves that problem. So focus on that. If you then find that you're getting, you know, piquing people's interest and there's people that are saying, yeah, I can totally relate to the problem and I would pay for a solution to solve it and you're directionally solving it for them, then you Mm -hmm. might go look for a Series A check. Um, I had my rant earlier because the problem is that a lot of Series A checks in Europe, um, you know, they're not large enough. So some of my earlier companies that I worked with, we got checks for, for a million bucks mm. and you're doing an enterprise sale that could be a sales cycle of a year. Yeah. And you're the first to market with it. Your cash has gone in three months and you're back to the well. And you're so so. But at that stage, you're kind of, you know, in the U.S., you're getting bigger checks than Europe, right? So you might be getting a five or 10 million. That's definitely very much around... Um, you know, validating that the the product market fit is there, you know, trying to do a land grab initially. Obviously, if you've got a much bigger check, you can do a winner-takes-all approach whereby you're kind of creating the category, you're looking for, um, you know, product leadership. And then as you sort of scale up Series B, Series C, Series B and C, the checks are much larger. You're kind of in acquisition territory where you're maybe picking up a couple of smaller players. You might be doing first boots on the ground in Europe with physical presence, um, in Asia as well. Your marketing function then all of a sudden becomes international. Um, there are some of the elements, Pete. I could go on and on, but from no, the sake perfect. of brevity, I'll pause there. But, but that's something to think about.
1: Uh, so what's the right time for a company to expand out into Europe, Alan? Uh, depends. What are some of the mistakes? <laughs> You're just going to keep hammering this poor
0: guy. I, <laughs> am, I the first, am I the first guest that's ever given that as an answer?
2: I hope I'm not right. I hope others no. are kind of... He's, he's just... He's just I'm being a sasshole.
1: I'm, I'm a sasshole. Jesus,
2: leave the poor guy alone, my God.
0: I, would I be the first guest if I got up and walked out? Would that help with the virality? <laughs> <laughs> yes.
1: Well, I, I think the listenership would pick up oh my god that's crazy <laughs> there we go
0: Damn. i'm gonna i'm gonna and i'm not gonna plead the fifth i'm gonna answer it right so look SAS, you, you know from day one right your website should be able to take people from all over the world right that that should be part of the journey right i would what i would say then is the big markets historically are always the u.s right you guys have a phenomenal opportunity because you know throw Canada into the mix um and you got a very big domestic market that's pretty much the same. You come across to Europe, the UK is, is the biggest next market that will typically show up. But the UK has been a bit funny the last couple of years because they've taken their ball and they've left the play group and said, we don't want to play with you guys anymore and we're going over here. So yeah. they've left the European Union um, yeah. Um, this isn't a political podcast, but it does create extra kind of... Europe is a lot more fragmented, right? We've got lots of different languages and currencies and sort of... Um, but, but we still have this European uni- Union entity, which is a pretty big block. So what I'd suggest you do, Peter, is from day one, you should be running something like Google Analytics and Google Search Console. So you'll start getting early indications of where the traffic pools are from, from non-US traffic, right? But you've got to always treat Google Analytics with a with a with a hint of caution, right? Because you can fall into traps going, Wow, look at India. India is the second biggest source of traffic to our site. Yeah, but when you look at a kind of purchase power parity or kind of the purchasing power of that market, a lot of that you know cohort are not looking for B2B SaaS solutions. Their motivations for visiting your site are very different. Yeah. So I guess um I'm a great believer in pattern recognition. So you know, look at your early analytics, look at your early search console, but then look at closed one. Yeah. You know, look at the deals that are closed one. That's the first, because obviously if you're able to close remotely, um, and you can close remotely because a lot of European consumers are comfortable buying off American companies. They don't need to see you guys face to face. Even for higher ticket, ticket items that previously you would have needed to fly here to meet, you can now increasingly serve those remotely. So there's some of the elements. So I guess straight yeah. out the gate, you want to be doing this, but don't fall into the trap then, I guess, of trying to internationalize everything, going, hey, well, let's do a Spanish version. Let's do a French version. There's a huge hidden cost to doing that sort of localization. And what you'll actually find is that most enterprise buyers in Europe are going to have English as a native. If not a native tongue, they'll have it as a second language. So don't fall into the trap of trying to customize and localize everything.
1: So if you want to dip your toe in the water, you could outsource... Uh... Ireland is pretty popular. A lot of call centers out there. Any particular reason why uh, uh, is, is uh friendly yeah, out Ar- there le- Ar- le- legally?
0: Um, Ireland is huge, right, Fritz? So from in terms of foreign direct investment, Ireland it punches way above its weight. Um, there's a bit of a bias because you've picked up the accent I'm from Ireland originally. Um, there's a couple of reasons, right? You know, it, it's, you know, you, you, Americans rocking up in Ireland. The first wave had, literally family connections, right? That was often one of the drivers. It was like, yeah, I'm familiar with Ireland. My grandparents were from there or whatever. And obviously very highly populated, um, you know, um, very highly populated education system, right? So sorry, very highly, very well-educated population, right? So the number at third level is really very high. It's in the European Union, which is a big tick, which goes against the UK just after moving out. And then, of course, what we have is we have the likes of Apple, EMC, Dell, Google, Facebook. They've been in there a long, long time, and they've really got significant operations there. So you get this flywheel effect where people are getting, you know, they're getting to learn um, um, a little bit about, you know, working in these big organizations. And then they're able to, when a smaller company comes out and looks at where they, where they grow in, in Europe, Ireland becomes a, an obvious landing point. And then you can walk around parts of Dublin and, you know, it it looks and feels a bit like certain parts of the US, right? You you probably don't have, um, you know, the high streets aren't quite the same, but you'll get your Starbucks latte, right? You'll get your, you you know, it doesn't feel as alien, which kind of, um, which quirks, right? There's some of the reasons. There's a good tax system there. I could go on, but but definitely, you know, there's an event called Sastock. Sastock runs every November. Um, that is in Ireland, and that's the perfect point. If you're ever looking to consider Europe, you should go to SASDOC. Hopefully, we'll be in person this year. It's obviously the last few years it's been remote, but yeah. that's a big conference where you get a lot of Americans flying in, um, and that gives them an opportunity to see the lay of the land in, in places like Dublin and put, put um, you know an office down.
2: Yeah. I, I love I love what you were saying, by the way, um, wrapping back to the when do you when when and how can you you know exp, uh, expand into uh, into Europe there? I I faced I hear you because I faced the exact same thing at um, at Upkeep, my last company. Um, we looked at the data and we found that we got tons of leads that were coming in from India and South Africa um, and South Africa was actually easy to facilitate because the language barrier was not uh, was not there. India was difficult. But. But my my operations guy was wise enough to give me the data that I was asking for. We found that the conversion rates in India and conversion rates in South Africa, while visits and leads were were, uh, uh, very large outside of the U.S., um, the conversion rates were low. And when we dug even deeper into that by listening to some calls and talking to salespeople – um, they, they said, "Yeah, they they the give us this price objection all the time. Boy, it's it's uh, you know too expensive." Now, look, dyed in the wool sales guy, too expensive. Let's overcome up that price objection. Right? No, no. You 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 called it um, purchase power parity. I think is what you just right. you said. Right? Yeah, we were one of the lowest cost softwares for maintenance management in the industry, highly rated on G two and low cost. And India is saying, and South Africa is saying, too expensive. Okay. So, so, you know, we weren't going to dedicate resources there, but we did have a resource in um, in the UK and she was local and she was local there. There's there truly, I learned when I built an STR team in the UK at one of my previous companies, by the way, there's, you know, yeah, the language is the same, but it's not used exactly the same and the cultures are different too. And so it's not, it's not plug and play. There are some nuances, to selling to people in the UK versus selling to people in the in the US, what what do you think about that? I, listen, I totally
0: agree. Right, so so I think, and of course, the beauty of it is that there's a lot of freelancers like myself. So freelancing didn't exist ten years ago to the same extent. Whereas there's an not- awful mm-hmm. lot of freelance consultants mm-hmm. um, that can facilitate market entry, right, and, and into different places. And you're absolutely right. I, I mean, I do recall a couple of years ago a number of i mean probably 10 years ago actually in the first tranche of a big american companies i used to see rocking up in london and i remember i I spoke to a couple actually of the of the biggest names that that you guys would have in in the kind of software space and you know i remember one putting in an entire team flying over three or four as the boots in the ground initially and and you know it struck me as being so wrong these guys and girls were you know they were pretty young pretty junior pretty green they were bright right but they they I don't know if they'd been in Europe, into Europe before. And, and sort of, I just couldn't for the life of me understand why that step was being missed, right. About just, just using local expertise. And look, I, I'll give you a funny one. So, you know, I've got a couple of clients in, in the U S that are, that are looking a market entry into Europe. And, um, you know, I, I have friends and former colleagues and they'll pick up a phone and they'll, they'll have a chat with me and I'll kind of signpost them in different directions. because they, they know that this, local presence or having some connection with someone locally is worth its weight in gold and and just not trying to fly in, you know, without using some local connections.
2: Yeah, no, no question about it. I I'm, I'm going to make a joke. This is a real story, Alan. Um, when I was building this SDR team, I didn't know that pants meant something different in the UK. <laughs> and, and 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 to those that are from you know the, you know, from the UK, <laughs> pants means underwear in, right. in the in the right. UK. And it was and I'm making that joke, Alan, because this was the naivete that I brought to the table when I'm building this SDR team in the UK. And there's, you know, the language is the same, but there's some differences there. And so having somebody local on the ground to help you and guide you in, in uh, localizing that go-to-market effort is, is, is important. You,
0: you can, you can get unstuck on things that you're not even thinking about. So you could be thinking pricing, but you know, some people buy decisions on where does the data reside, Right. they don't want data you know you know flying from Europe across to cross america and coming back because of you know security concerns and because of you know there's different I'm probably out of my depth in terms of knowing exactly the the kind of specifics but you have this scenario now where the UK is outside of Europe and, and I know um of people you know that have got issues that used to be able to work in Ireland remotely and can no longer work in Ireland remotely because the data is now being transferred ex you know outside of the European Union so like even small things like this, and of course SaaS is all about data moving around the world, right? So those sort of nuances can be completely lost. And they're not language, they're they're related to kind of just some of the weirdness about the market, right? That um that mean that you could be on on calls and you could be losing them um on grounds that you've got no idea as to as to what's driving the decision. Yeah. Sorry, Pete, you were going to come in on something, I think. No, I
1: was just going to say, Kevin, it's a good thing you don't smoke because you have to be careful about asking for a cigarette. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, hey, hey, this is a, this is a family <laughs>
2: show, Pete. No,
1: I'm kidding. It's assholes. Oh, Alan, Alan, we know you're not taking on any more uh, clients, but if somebody wants to learn more about you, will just say you have a client drop off in the event that could ever happen. Sure. Uh, what's the best way for uh, somebody to get a hold of you?
0: Um, I think alangleason.com, you'll find me there, Our Work With Agility. Work With Agility is my um, company website. Um, I'm not as prolific on Twitter as I used to be, and Medium, I used to be writing quite a lot, but that's dropped off a little bit. But, yeah, you can hit me up on Work With Agility. You'll find me on LinkedIn as well, so feel free to send a message through, and I'll help in whatever way I can.
1: Well, Alan, thank you so much for coming on the show today. What, what a great time. You're a good sport.
0: Pete, thank you so much for having me. Really enjoyed chatting to you guys. And thanks, KG,
2: as well. You got it.
1: Hey, we'll, uh, we'll put all the links uh, in the podcast notes. And Alan, I run about 80% correct. So you may want to check me afterwards. Thanks for listening. You know, to I'm this. pretty
0: happy. I'm pretty happy. <laughs> you go with it.
1: Hey, thanks for listening to Souls On behalf of KG and myself, Pete, we thank you for listening. And we ask that you give us five stars in Apple Podcasts. Subscribe to our weekly news uh, letter. You'll find it in the podcast notes. And hey, if you really, really like us, you can always buy us a beer on Patreon slash Sassholes. We thank you for listening. Cue the music.